0: Good morning. Can you guys open your Bibles or turn them on? Mark 6, as Eric said, we're continuing our study of Mark. Uh, Throughout my life, for obvious reasons, I've been asked often by total, usually by total strangers, you play basketball? (laughs) (laughs) What am I going to say, no? Like, What I've always wanted to say is, do you bowl? Or something really, really snotty like that, but I'm just not, or snarky, I just don't have it in me to do it. I wish I did, but um, one of the fun things about being tall and playing, and admittedly I played in a small school, so I was able to play, is you can reject people. It's fantastic. Like everyone thinks, oh, can you slam the wall? Yeah, yeah, but rejecting people is awesome. These point guards would come moseying in there. Bam! That ball's out of there. You know, and when you're watching a game, I don't know who watches it, NBA fans. It's just fun. The announcers, their favorite part. Rejected! I mean, that's just, that's what they want, right? But in preparing this, and thinking about the message today, which is titled Rejected, that actually made me think, you know what, I never once considered what it's like to be the guy who had the shot tossed out of the stadium. What it's like to get it right back in your face. Mm-hmm. We all know what it's like to be rejected, don't we? Yes. may seem small. I went just quickly through my own life. Junior high, enough said. <laughs> Co- college applications, job interviews. Some of you know the story. The first time I asked Joni out, rejected. Rejected. <laughs> yeah. Here we are. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but in all seriousness, none of these experiences begin to compare. To what we're going to see that Jesus faces in our passage today. We've already seen this unexpected king face multiple challenges, have we not, to his authority from multiple sources. And here he faces unexpected rejection. We're going to see how he faces it personally, missionally, and even ultimately. So let's read together in Mark 6, beginning in verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. I don't know about you, but as usual, it is easy to read through these stories and think, well, it's Jesus. Okay, yeah, I see what's happening, but it's Jesus. But I want to start right in this, this bit that we're here in Mark 6 and just help us to grasp a bit of his humanity. Mm. This is his hometown. Theologians think it's the second time since his public ministry that he's come back to his hometown, and it is the last one. It's his hometown, and admittedly, it's not much to speak of. Nazareth was described as a backwater of uh, nobodies from nowhere. And that's the way they treated Jesus here as well. It was probably somewhere between 150 and 200 people, so not many. Some of those few people that were there, and apparently, ask Very rude questions. We read them and they're like, oh, they sound basic. Here's this, I found this on Akin's commentary, and I'm going to paraphrase a little differently, but here's the gist of what they're asking. They asked five questions. I won't reread them. You can see them there. But here's the paraphrase of what they were trying to communicate. This guy is the Messiah? We've known him all our lives can't explain miracles words he's saying but we know who he is a nobody and a nothing that's the gist of what's being communicated that's the the feel of it it's striking because they state these things so clearly and yet the kind of questions they ask I mean especially the one about the how are such mighty works done by his hands what mighty works the many healings We've already already talked about them. The leper restored, the paralytic. The sea calmed just in the last chapter. The woman with the issue of blood healed. I don't know how many knew about Jairus' daughter. But apparently they knew of mighty works. They called them out. But they don't make the connection between knowing the mighty works and saving faith. And recognition of who Jesus is. In fact, Achan says, apart from the eyes of faith, no one... We'll see Jesus for who he truly is. And Jesus marvels. That's the word we don't use often. He was amazed. Amazed at what? Amazed at their unbelief, their lack of faith. You know, there's only one other time in the Gospels where it says that Jesus marveled. Do you remember what it is? Is anybody, anybody? remember? Centurion? I heard somebody say centurion. The centurion. Centurion, a Gentile. And it was for what? His faith. So it's the, it's the flip side of the coin. Remarkable here. Jesus marveled at their lack of faith. And then it goes further. Verse 5, he could do no mighty work. Except for a few healings. Tim Keller says in regard to this, and I think this is very helpful, quote, Jesus' miracles were signs of the kingdom to show his redemptive power. Eric said it just now. We were talking about Cameron and his mother. It points to Jesus. The acts point to him. They're not meant to be standalone magic tricks. They point to him. So Keller says, what happened here? What are we supposed to do with this? The God of the universe couldn't do a mighty work? Here's why. If I could find my notes, there it is. Jesus' miracles were signs of the kingdom to show his redemptive power. He could not do a deed that would not redeem. Oh, family. With all the richness of his good news, with all the miraculous works, still the king over all did not force himself on those who would not believe. Is there a more sobering truth? A more sobering fact? And still, yet, what else does he do? That wasn't only his response. He marveled. And then it says in verse 6, picking back up, he went about among the villages teaching. He goes on to others who may listen. And then he begins to send out his disciples. Verse 7, he called the twelve and began to send them out. Two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Those are shirts. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there, and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. In the context of Jesus' very personal, sharp rejection, he goes elsewhere. And he begins to send out his disciples. Let's keep going with the message. Yeah, Let's keep going. That's why I'm here. I have good news that brings joy. Yeah, how many of us would have just like wilted? Yeah. And for good reason, right. honestly, right. under that kind of his own family. I don't even know. Was it his mother? synagogue leaders, whatever it was. But he's like, no, I'm marveling at your unbelief, but I'm going to keep going. There's so, much, there's so much good here. And he begins to send the disciples out. And it's fascinating. He sends them out with very specific, very unconventional, very non-intuitive instructions, doesn't he? I'll just say this would be totally inconsistent with, um, we'll call them the world-changing ministry consultants. He's already off base to begin with. Like, wait, you came with nothing. You were God. You set it all aside. You came and were born in a manger. What's up with that? Like, not going to exert any power? Okay, well, I'm seeing some of the works, but apparently the works aren't connecting Jesus. So maybe you could, like, we'll do a little more strategic planning. We'll put some things together. These guys aren't ready. I don't know what you're thinking. But, and even two by two, nice try for the redundancy, but you're going to need more than that. Like, honestly, like, we literally, just step aside and think we can read over this and miss it. He does not ask conventional things. It's not conventional wisdom, it's not thorough preparation, it's not deep stores. It says no bags, no money in their belts. Now, is it holy? I have seen this misused. I'm sure many of us have. Like, no preparation whatsoever. If you are a student, you need to work hard. (laughs) You need to do your homework. You need to study. You need to apply. This scripture is not meant to tell us that you don't need to apply yourself. That you don't need to be diligent. What does Peter say? We talked about it. Make every effort. That's what's in view here. What is his view is that Jesus is sending us out. Here are a few principles we can draw from just this this passage when he begins to commission his disciples. He called them, remember, back in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he called the 12 to him, and he said it was specifically to do this. Now, a number of chapters had gone by before he sends them out. And now he begins to send them out. And uh, later, in verse 30 and 32, it calls them apostles, I think for the first time. And apostles just means sent ones. It means the sent ones. And he does. He sends them together, two by two. There is wisdom in that. There is wisdom in that. It's better. Two better than one, Ecclesiastes says. And I think one of the most important things is that he sends them with delegated authority over demons, over sickness, and over sin. The reason I say over sin is because the message they were to proclaim was this, and it says it, they proclaimed that people should... Verse 12. Mm-hmm. Jesus never sends us out without his authority mm-hmm. yes. and his presence. Amen. So we must not separate his commission from him. Right. I mean, that's so obvious, but we must not do it. Right. We must not separate our effort to walk in his ministry from him yeah. and from his word. This includes Casting out demons and healing, as we just talked about and highlighted this morning, and there are other examples. They must all link back to him. Why? Because the signs are meant to point to him. That is so important. This is the way Jesus is beginning to frame ministry. He was like, Well, we'll get to the Great Commission. Why are we talking about this now? Because He's doing mission now. He's sending His disciples out now in the face of rejection. Amazing word is to repent. It's very simple. Again, they're doing the same thing. He said repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They say, proclaiming everyone should repent. They're not overly prepared. They're not certain. They simply go and they simply preach to whoever listens. And then he does. He gives them direction for how to respond when people don't respond. Which, by the way, just happened to him. Shake the dust off your feet. Not call fire down from heaven. (laughs) not unload the insults on your socials about this community or this group of people or this type of people. No, it's just shake the dust off. There's some cultural things related to that. And in essence, um, of course, the distinction between Jew and Gentiles was strong. And so when the Jews left the Gentile town, it was a tradition, rabbinic tradition, to shake the dust off. It's like none of them is touching me anymore. So I'm sure he's playing on that a little bit here. But he's turning it from, it's not Judentile. It's are you listening or are you not listening? Are you rejecting or are you receiving? Shake the dust off your feet. It's an illustration of their accountability, not before us, not before them, before God. And move on and move on. <laughs> Go somewhere else you know and in summary their ministry here's the principle of mission our ministry should look like Jesus who came with nothing he doesn't he didn't have it all fully prepared and yet he goes and and so what happens verse 13 they they did what he said they preached people verse 13 cast out many demons and they healed many they do they do all these things, and, and word must have spread In fact, as we move on, we see it did. Verse 14, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And now we get... I like Eric when we were working through this passage. He said, this is a needle scratch flashback. So remember, Mark is a travel documentary. It's it's basically like a a memory book. And we're looking at these pictures. And so now we're going to get a really abrupt and somewhat lengthy and honestly lurid and unpleasant flashback of what has happened here. Because Herod just said, John, who I beheaded, has been raised. Now we're going to get the story. Verse 17, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in a prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. That's a very specific way to say you must repent. Repent. And Herodias, verse 19, had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed. The word there uh, is meant to reflect he was conflicted. He had conflicting views about him. And yet it says he heard him gladly. Verse 21, but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, contrast to Nazareth in the backwater. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, and this was not pleasant dancing. This is seductive, drunk old men. So just have this in mind. We can read over this. Like This is an ugly story. When her daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist... When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Why here? Before I answer that, or try to answer that, I want to encourage us in our Bible reading, because I've been encouraged by this, and even just in dialogue with Eric and the brothers. We were away, by the way, for our elders retreat um, this week privilege to be away, and one of the highlights was praying for you all. Just raising you guys to the Lord. Loved it. Um, But one of the things that Eric helped me with in particular in this passage was just, look, why is this here? And so what I wanted to encourage you in your Bible reading is can you talk about it with one another? You don't have to be in a Bible study. You don't have to be, it doesn't have to be in a meeting. If you read over this passage and you're having dinner with your spouse later that evening, Talk about it. Why do you think this is here? I just want to encourage us to talk about the Scripture, because when I talked to Eric about it, I didn't want to talk about this passage. There's multiple reasons why. It's ugly, and I also think it's parenthetical. It really doesn't flow, but the more we talked about it, it's like, oh, but there's something here. You know what? There's nothing wasted in Scripture. We all know that, but when we pass over some of these hard words, the lurid words, the ugliness, We need to press in. And one way to help one another do that is talk about it. Talk about it with each other. Why is the story here? Did you notice, and Eric helped me to notice, that it's sandwiched between Jesus commissioning his disciples and the very next verse, verse 30, what does it say? The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done. Now that is not accidental. That is not Mark giving us a fluke. In the course of his mission, Jesus' mission, we will face rejection and persecution. This is to be expected. And here is an example in the extreme. I think that's fair to say in the very least. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So says Jesus in John 15:20 us to take up our cross and follow him. There is not to be a limit in what that will cost us. For John, it cost him his life. Did you know it ultimately cost all his disciples theirs as well? And let's be honest, it's going to cost us ours as well. Whether it's by martyrdom or it's just the end. And it's interesting to me I think I was talking to Michael about we were having breakfast, Michael Combs. Um, I, I would like to say that I would die for Jesus. And I, and like I mean, I, like if, if I'm, like I'm going to take your life, I would like to, be able to do that. And I'm willing to bet that many of us would say, yes, I think we could do that. You know what I'm not willing to do, or I'm less willing to do? die a little every day face the struggle day in day out but why is it it's not on our terms it's not on our terms that we follow him and that we walk in his ways and walk in his mission that's why some again those unconventional instructions that he gave his disciples no bag uh, take take your staff yes sandals no two tunics I mean we follow him we do his work the way he did it and we're willing I think the other thing we can conclude from this, this passage, this part of, of Mark chapter 6, this foreshadows to some extent Jesus' coming death at the hand of wicked rulers. You know, John, there's very little uh, specific or remarkable about his ministry other than the fact that he called out Jesus and yet Jesus, and, and prepared the way for him, and Jesus says he's the greatest born to women. Commentators think he ministered less than a year. He never did a miraculous work, and this was his end. Who, who, who humanly speaking, would think that was a successful ministry? What <laughs> strikes me about this is that this account is utterly absent of any explanatory context whatsoever. Like what I mean by that is there's no attempt whatsoever to defend that well, but God's at work Is he? Because this looks really bad. We don't get a yay or nay on that. We just get the account. We just get it very plain. And next, the apostles also plainly account for their work. Wrapping in thirty in just the last few verses here, the apostles came to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. This is Jesus' response, 31. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, they had no leisure even to eat, and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Having been on mission, of all their work, Jesus invites his disciples to come away with him for a while and to rest. It was so busy. It was so crowded. They couldn't even eat. This is the second time that Mark has specifically called that out. Chapter 3, verse 20 and 21 says the exact same thing. The greater the demands, the greater the need for time away and alone with Jesus. That is another foundational principle of mission and ministry. Yes, expect rejection. Yes, go in these unconventional ways. But church family, brothers and sisters, we need to be with him. Jesus knew that. The parallel passages here in the other Gospels, I, I encourage you, that's another thing great to read. Because we have four Gospels, some of them account for the same story, a different angle. Same thing here. And you hear a little bit about Jesus, the disciples are like, we we, we cast out demons. And he's like, hey, good. But rejoice in what? That your name is written in the book of life. You're with me. It's, it's like rejoice in the relationship. You, that's, where we, that's where we anchor. Because again, what did the signs point to? Jesus, to him. That's what it's about. So, having looked at these accounts in Mark's docudrama of the Unexpected King, we've seen how much Jesus himself was rejected, and we've seen a bit of how his followers were to face it, and actually did face it. So, how are we to respond? How does this apply to us today? I want to ask a series of relatively rapid-fire questions, and I don't mean for everyone to answer them all. But I want to encourage you, as I do, to listen, because I trust that the Holy Spirit is always working. He's always speaking to us. And I think one or more of these questions may specifically address you and where you are. When it comes to faith in Jesus, there are Roughly two kinds of people, and I really debated whether or not to do this because I hate when people say there are two kinds of people in the world because there's never two kinds of people in the world. (laughs) Roughly, okay, work with me. There are roughly two kinds of people when it comes to faith in Jesus those who are rejecting and those who are being rejected. I think that's a fair bucketing. So, my question number one is this Are you rejecting him? Don't answer too quickly. Insisting that he fit in your box, ignoring his evident work and his love. Are you preventing God from working miracles because you believe he just cannot move in your life? You're elevating your own perception, not unlike his hometown, not unlike maybe his family even. Saying he can't do anything is a self-fulfilling prophecy. And often familiarity breeds contempt, doesn't it? Oh, we know him. He can't be anybody. Mm. Do you realize? It's sobering, but I think we need to hear it. Do you realize that we—I'm talking all of us, including those who put their faith in Christ—get Jesus wrong? Why? Because we bring our own assessment to the table. We're always filtering everything through how we think and what we've experienced. The hardship, the good, the bad, the ugly. We, we are the ones that are filtering all that. Look at all of biblical history. Thank you. Look at all of biblical history. We have a box too often that we insist that he must fit in. Don't we? Based on our limited experience, over or under familiar. Are we too comfortable with him? Or more accurately, do we have a limited idea of who he is? This is why it's so important and what a blessing we get to just marinate and mark and really come to grips with this unexpected king. Are you only willing to come to him on your terms? Or will you come on his? There is no room for the former. We cannot bring anything in our hands. You know, in this season of Advent, can every heart Prepare him room? Let's celebrate Christmas that way. And even if you already have, can you do so more? Can you tamp down the barriers that we tend to rise? Well, Jesus hasn't responded. He hasn't fixed this. I'm not healed. I'm not this. I'm not that. We don't come on our terms, we come on His. Are you rejecting His word? Again, don't answer too quickly. I mean, my first answer to that, of course, heck no, of course not. I love the Lord, love his word. Really? Are you overlooking it? Are you reading it? Do you minimize it? Are you selective about it? I was tempted to be really selective in this passage. And I don't think it was a sin, but that's my point. It's like I want to I see certain things and I, I don't want to emphasize other things. And the reality is that all of scripture speaks to us. Let's not be selective with his word. It is not a cafeteria from which we pick only what we want that serves our needs. Absolutely not. And if something in scripture does not sit right with you, lean into it. Yeah. We need to be shaped by God's word. Are you being rejected by others because of your faith? I know some of you are. And it's heartbreaking. Even as I was preparing this word, I was thinking of you and praying for you. Do you see how Jesus stood in the face of great personal rejection? So many of us are deeply affected by our own experience and sense of that, and some of it is very current and very real. But our Lord Jesus subjected himself to that here and in his life beyond anything we could possibly imagine. Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. For that reason, can I encourage you, You don't need to be ashamed. I don't want to minimize your suffering if you are experiencing rejection because of him. But I just want to point you to the fact, here's how he endured. Here's how he endured it. Jesus bore it with grief, yes, I think, but with love. He feels it deeply. And Hebrews says he's able to sympathize with us in our weakness, in our experience. But it wasn't just in this moment that he was rejected. He went all the way to the cross. He empathizes with his people. And for the joy set before him, he endured it. Are you willing to follow him in his ministry on all his explicit terms, including facing rejection? Do you expect him to ask only things that are reasonable? We may not actually have our heads chopped off. I hope not. Many of us. But are we willing to count the cost to follow Jesus day in, day out, trusting him to supply our daily needs? Go as he sends us, with the delegated authority that he gives us. Do we rest in him and in his work? Not in whether we're successful or not. Not in whether we've been received or not, or rejected. We rejoice not in achievement, but in relationship. That's so much what about it is. So, and then finally, I just want to say, do we recognize, and Aiken says this, and Daniel Aiken in the commentary on this passage says, The kingdom advances mysteriously in the midst of rejection, and even the death of God's choice servants, through John, the disciples, through faithful followers throughout redemptive history, read the chapter 11 of Hebrews, and even now through us today, exactly as Jesus has done himself. Isaiah goes on in chapter 53. He says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Brothers and sisters, the Christian faith, Jesus' work, was in the midst of rejection, the midst of what looked like absolute failure, and that is what we are called to and through, because exactly at that moment is how God met us. Do you know why we're not rejected by God? Because Jesus was rejected where we should have been, in an absolute and an ultimate sense. And that is our hope. That is our hope now. Because he was rejected, we are ultimately accepted, we are received. So can I ask us to stand and let me just pray.